Well, if you have a Bible, let's open up to John chapter 12 this morning as we continue on in our study through the Gospel of John. Hopefully in just a moment you will see how that song ties nicely into what we are about to study. And as you're opening up to the Gospel of John, remember if you have absolutely no idea where John is, that's okay. Feel free to use the table of contents. You'll go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you'll find John. And go to the big number 12, that's the chapter that we're going to be in, and then go to verse number 12, that's where we're going to start this morning. And as you're opening up to John chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 12 through 19. I want you to put yourself in the cockpit of a small airplane as the pilot. Many of you have had this exact same experience. Some of you uh, have flown small planes before. Uh, I have never been in a small plane, so if any of you know how to do that, I would like to ride along with you. I've always wanted to do that. Just saying. But many of you, I want you to put yourself in the cockpit of a small plane as the pilot and, and imagining going through the kind of the pre-flight routine, you've cleared your flight plans with air traffic control, you've done all of your pre-flight checks, and now you take off and you head towards your destination as you leave the runway and you're heading towards your destination, which may be hundreds of miles away. And as you are flying and going towards your destination, you reach at some point what is known as the point of no return. And that point of no return is the place in your flight where you have insufficient fuel to turn around and return back to where you came from. You don't have the fuel to go back to your original destination or your original kind of point of, of origin to that back to that runway. And so you have to go forward or you have to find an alternative site to land. But basically the big idea of the point of no return is just that. There's no turning back. You can't go back to where you came from. And this phrase, point of no return, that we use a lot just in kind of normal everyday speech has its origins in aviation, but it's been used to describe the point in any sort of you know, process or sequence of events where some development eventually becomes inevitable. You know, it's, it's the, this thing has kicked off and now we are moving towards this and there's nothing we can do about it. It's the point of no return. We've all experienced moments like this, these kind of gut check moments or points of no return, and you know that as soon as you take the next step, it will kick off a series of inevitable events that, will, that you'll not be able to take back, you'll not be able to return to where you were. You know at the, from this point forward, life's going to be different. It's a point of no return. Maybe it's, do I make the phone call or not? Do I take the new job or not? Do I send that email or not? Do I jump off the high thing or not? Do I break up with this person or not? It's these moments that we look at and we go, okay, if I make this decision from this point forward, life's going to be different. This kind of gut check moment. You ever had a moment like that? I have. Maybe I'm the only one. And the passage that we're about to read, you're like, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Okay, well, the passage that we are about to read in the life and ministry of Jesus is a point of no return for Jesus. This is a point of no return. Here's what Andreas Kostenberger said in his helpful book, talking about the last week of Jesus in his ministry. He writes, up to this point in Jesus' ministry, he could have managed to live a long, happy, peaceful life. But his actions on Sunday set in motion a series of events that could result only in either his overthrow of the Romans and the current religious establishment or his brutal death. He has crossed the point of no return. 
and there will be no turning back. We're at a real hinge point in the life and ministry of Jesus. And as we have seen throughout our study through John's gospel account, you may remember and may notice that the tension has been rising between Jesus and the Pharisees, who have themselves been afraid of causing tension between them and the Roman Empire because of the rising notoriety of Jesus. There's just this tension that has been building throughout the gospel account. John chapter 11, verse 48, that we looked at a few weeks ago, the Pharisees said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So you see this tension that's rising between Jesus and the religious leaders, but also they were afraid that as Jesus' notoriety was rising, that they might awaken the mighty Roman Empire who would come in and crush them and take away their temple and their land and everything that they knew. And as this tension continues to mount, we see Jesus do something really strange. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey in what has come to be known as the triumphal entry. And through the eyes of a secular kind of onlooking world, this looks like anything but triumphant. It actually looks really silly. But for those of you who trust Christ and are here this morning, as we know through the eyes of faith, this doesn't look silly. It actually looks really hopeful. And that's what we're going to hone in on this morning. Let's see if we can pick up on this as we read the triumphal entry from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to this text. Please pray with me. Father, we come before you with expectant hearts. Lord, And as we look to your word, we pray that you would meet us here. Speak to us, take these words, apply them to our hearts. Father, we long to worship you. Spirit, we need your help. Jesus, we long to or give you all the glory that you deserve. Be with us now, and we pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, so we think about the scene that's going on here. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And remember, to the watching world, they look at that and go, that's your Savior? <laughs> really? That's it? Guy riding in on a donkey. But yet, through the eyes of faith, we see what has happened here, and we see it with great hope. And so the big question that we're going to ask this morning is, how does the picture of Jesus riding in on a donkey give us hope? How do we find hope in the midst of this? We're going to see three ways that this does. These are going to be our points this morning if you're a note-taking type of person. Number one, we're going to see that we find hope in the fearlessness of Christ, verses 12 and 13. Second, we're going to see that we find hope in the fulfillment of Christ, that's verses 14 to 18. And then finally, we find hope in the future of Christ. There's a lot of hope going on there. Let's look at that first point. We find hope in the fearlessness of Christ, verses 12 and 13. 
This passage marks the beginning of the final days of Jesus' earthly ministry as we have kind of crossed a point of no return. We're marching towards the cross. Remember, we've been marching towards the cross day by day, each and every week, as we have moved through this gospel account. The cross is always on the horizon. And I want you to think about what Jesus is really doing here. He is riding calmly into the very jaws of death. The cross is looming. He knows it's coming. He is riding calmly into Jerusalem towards his impending death. And look at verse 12. It says that a huge crowd had gathered in Jerusalem for the week-long celebration of the Passover feast. This was the central feast or event for Jews. Remember, we've looked at Feast of Booths and Tabernacles. We've looked at a bunch of different feast days as we've gone through, gospel, through John's gospel. And now we've arrived at the Passover. And Christ enters the city of Jerusalem, which is the hub of Jewish religion, full of Jewish leaders who hated him and wanted him out of the picture. Remember, we, you go back chapters and chapters and chapters ago, the Pharisees made it up in their mind, we need to take this guy out. And so we've been reminded constantly that they decided to try to put Jesus to death. These religious leaders, the Pharisees, had plotted to kill him. And in verse 9, we read that they wanted to kill Lazarus too. Because people were seeing him raised from the dead and started following Jesus. Remember, we talked about this last week. you got poor Lazarus. He's died and was in the tomb for four days. Jesus calls him out of the tomb by the power of his own voice. Lazarus comes back to life. Remember, this is a public miracle that was seen by many. And what you have here is Lazarus. Remember, they're dining together last week. And the Pharisees look at poor Lazarus and they're like, we got to kill him too. It's amazing when you think about just the hatred that is stored up against Jesus and anyone who is bringing attention to Christ. And we see in verse 12 that a large crowd had gathered because they heard that Jesus was coming. And in verse 13, they start waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna. And this is the only time this word is used in the Old Testament is in Psalm 118, which we referred to this morning in your call to worship and all those things. And it's translated, save us, save now. Because I want you to remember at the time, Jerusalem was controlled by the mighty Roman Empire. They were people under occupation. And again, what we do is we read the scripture, we want to read it in its historical context, and then we want to draw out from the text application for our own day and age. We're not reading onto the text, we're drawing out. And so remember, the people of Jerusalem are under the thumb of the mighty Roman Empire, and they've heard all this stuff about Jesus, and he comes in and they start going, Save now! Save now! Please be with us! The people of Jerusalem were taxed and oppressed by an occupying force, and they wanted deliverance from the Romans. And the news of Jesus had spread throughout the land, and the crowd thought that Jesus would come and become the king of Israel, this long-awaited one. And they started waving palm branches, and they start spreading their cloaks on the ground. And what this is was an ancient practice of welcoming home a victorious military leader. I tell this story every time we get into kind of the triumphal entry because it matters. And you're thinking, why in the world are they doing this? It seems so weird. There was a, in Jewish history, there was a thing called the Maccabean Revolt in 164 B.C., where the Seleucids held Jerusalem and this guy named Judas the Hammer, Maccabeus, that was his nickname, Judas the Hammer. He fought against them and led this army and defeated the Seleucids. And on the, in the wake of that, religious worship was restored in the temple. The people celebrated by waving palm branches. This is similar to like a ticker tape parade in New York, if that gives you some semblance of what's going on. 
And the palm branch then became a symbol of national pride. You know, these, we're waving these palm branches, and it kind of became connected with this idea of deliverance from an occupying force. And so these, the crowd that was gathered was looking for Jesus to fight the Romans and restore their nation to its former glory. But you think about what did Jesus not bring with him to Jerusalem? What did he not bring with him? He didn't bring an army. He didn't come riding in on this massive war horse. He didn't bring any weapons. So you think it's kind of a weird way to welcome in a victorious military leader when it's just him on a donkey. He came on a young donkey covered with blankets. He came with no protection. Why? Because no fighting was necessary. Jesus knew what he was getting into, and he processed unafraid through the streets of Jerusalem to offer himself as that final Passover lamb to bring redemption to a broken and fallen world. Remember, we're marching towards the Passover, and Jesus is saying, I'm coming in and I'm going to be the, the, the real and true and better and ultimate Passover lamb. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. And the Pharisees were afraid that the Romans would see the commotion and send an army to suppress them. But Jesus wasn't concerned with taking the fight to the Romans because he was about to take the fight to hell itself and come out the victor. The Romans were pittance compared to what he was about to do. And so you think, why in the world should we care? This gives us hope as we fight against sin and brokenness in our own lives because the true king has come and he gives us the strength and the resources to fight on. Psalm 27 verse 1 reminds us that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And again, that word there, anytime you see L-O-R-D in capital letters, that's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So Yahweh is my strength. Yahweh is my shield. Yahweh is my defender. This covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. In Him do I find my hope. In His promises alone do I find strength and comfort in the midst of this. It matters. And so you think Jesus' fearlessness gives us courage and strength to face down the thing that we fear the most. Because if we think about what we're doing each and every day, we ride closer and closer to death which each, with each passing day. And this hope and the fearlessness of Jesus as He rides calmly into the face of death gives us hope and strength and comfort in the midst of that as well with each and every passing day. But we not only find hope in the fearlessness of Christ, in our second point, we find hope in the fulfillment of Christ, verses 14 to 18, which is kind of the heart of the passage. And so you think about today, we are so blessed to be able to hold God's complete word in our hands. And because of that, we know how the biblical story ends, don't we? We can kind of flip to the end and go to Revelation, Jesus wins. We're so grateful to have that. But in the moment, the crowd and the people that are gathered and, and Jesus' disciples did not have this luxury. And so what we get in these next few verses is a reminder of just how important the triumphal entry was at that time. Look at verse 14 where it says that Jesus purposely sought out. It says that he found a donkey. That means he was looking for it. He sought it out and he found this young donkey to sit on. Why? Verse 15, where John references Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Twenty years after exiles returned from the Babylonian captivity, God sent Zechariah to encourage the people living in Jerusalem to not give up. And they had laid the foundation of the destroyed temple, but they had faced hardship and oppression ever since. And so God spoke through 
this guy named Zechariah and reminded the people that he would one day judge the oppressors and bring forward the true king. And so this verse in Zechariah 9 had been written over 500 years before Jesus, and the people of God had waited that long for it to be fulfilled. You know, as we even sung about earlier this morning in our in our, in our worship service, you know, hallelujah, Jesus, come soon, come soon. You have promised to come back. We're still in that waiting period, are we not? We're still waiting for the king to return. So we know what this feels like, this promise that's laid before them. And it says this true king's going to come, and they've waited for hundreds of years. When is this one going to come? Now Jesus comes as the long-expected servant king to take his rightful place and to fulfill this prophecy. Imagine you being there, and it's taking place right there in front of you. Like, we've heard about this our whole lives, and now it's here. The donkey and everything. Imagine the perceived absurdity of this prophecy when it was first given, that the king of the universe will not come on a big war horse, but on a young beast of burden. You're like, what? Here's what R.C. Sproul said about these donkeys. He said, the donkeys people ride in the Holy Land are nothing like the donkeys we breed in the United States. They're much smaller so that men have to bend their knees as they ride so their feet don't hit the ground. So you can imagine Jesus riding in on the donkey and as he's there, he's having to kind of pull his feet up behind him so they don't drag the ground. You think about just how on on the surface, the donkey seems so trite. This looks so silly. But it was the exact sign God chose to signal the coming of the king, to use the foolish things to shame the wise. And think about how you would have felt if your whole life this prophecy of Zechariah 9 was read to you and now it was coming true in front of your eyes. Now I want you to think about how Jesus fulfilled every one of those Old Testament prophecies and we still have prophecies about him that have yet to be fulfilled. How could you not find hope in all the redemptive promises that have been fulfilled in Jesus? As he has been faithful to his word up until this point, will he not continue to be faithful? How could you not find hope to press on when Jesus has given you a perfect track record and promises that the best is yet to come? Don't you see how you lean into that? We remember how he has fulfilled all of these promises and prophecies up until this point. And then he's promised, I'm going to do even more. And we find hope and we lean into that and we say, yes, Lord, I believe you and I trust you by faith. You have always been faithful. You are faithful right now and you will continue to be faithful until the very end. And so help me to trust you all the more and more day by day by faith. Now we ask the question, do we understand absolutely everything? No, no, we don't. And if I, and if I ever claim to you that I have full insight and I know exactly how the story's going to end, you need to run from this church as fast as you can. I don't know. There's things that we don't understand. But look at verse 16. Even the disciples were confused at first. Even they looked at this. Only after the resurrection did a few more pieces of the puzzle fall into place. And suddenly Zechariah's prophecy made sense and their faith deepened. They're like, oh, we remember. Look at what he did. He really is the promised one. We also read events in the life of Jesus that we don't fully understand. But as we live and grow and follow King Jesus, little by little the pieces drop into place and we'll never get the full picture until Jesus comes again in glory. And even that he's promised to do. Even that he's promised to do. He's promised to come back to redeem and restore and reclaim. 
And we lean into that promise. This isn't just a passing fancy. This is a reason to get up in the morning. That Lord has always been faithful. I mean, look around you. These prophecies are being fulfilled. The kingdom of God is on the move. There is hope in God's word. There is hope in Christ Jesus. God is always at work. Look around you and see what the Lord is doing. As he's promised, the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. As weird as that sounds, and it seems like, well, it sounds like things are prevailing against the church, but they're not. And we lean into that. Fear not. Keep trusting. It's easy to lose hope. I get it. It's easy to want to give up when life gets hard. It feels, it's easy to give up when we feel like we've reached a point of no return. I understand. But when faced with the brokenness of the world and brokenness in your relationships or your ongoing struggles with sin and discouragement, some may have cried in this room, come quickly, save now, Hosanna, come, Lord, please, where are you? Am I the only one who said, Lord, where are you? Lord, will this ever come to an end? Lord, will you ever act? You may have inwardly cried that for years in a particular situation, pleading with Jesus to return and and restore. But in verse 19, we can find hope in His future, and that's our third point. We not only find hope in the fearlessness of Christ, we also find hope in His fulfillment, that He is the promised one, and He has been faithful and true to His word, and we, we see it being borne out, but yet there's even more to come. And so we find hope in the future of Christ. That's our third point. You can feel the exasperation of the Pharisees at this moment. Remember that tension that's been been rising? As the local religious leaders, they were a big part of the Passover festivities. And now Jesus is on the scene and he's stealing some of their thunder. You can just feel it. You can feel their exasperation. They see the crowd following Jesus and they lash out in defeat and anger. And it's really a sad scene when you think about it. You think about these folks, these Pharisees had spent their whole lives memorizing and teaching the law of God. They knew all the prophecies. They knew the righteous requirements of the law of God. Now the promised Messiah that they had taught about, the only one who could set them free from the crushing weight of sin, was standing right in front of them. And their hearts were blinded with rage and jealousy. In verse 19, you get the sense that the Pharisees might have been sensing a point of no return of their own. Look at what they say. They say, look, the whole world has gone after him. Look, the whole world's gone after him. Instead of embracing the Lamb of God they had spoken about for so long, they decided to use that same mouth to revile Jesus at the cross just a few days later. Revelation 13.8 tells us that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world and that this was all part of the plan to redeem a broken world through the eternal covenant of redemption. It was all part of God's sovereign plan and his mercy for his people. This was the way that it had to be done. Do you remember where the word Hosanna is found in the Old Testament? Psalm 118 verse 25 is where we see it. There's something else Psalm 118 says a few verses before the word Hosanna shows up. And here it is. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then verse 25. Save us, Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. This is the future of Jesus that gives us hope. He was rejected so that he could become our cornerstone. 
His heart was pierced so that ours could be changed by grace and made alive. He humbly rode into the jaws of death so that we may have life. And now Jesus sits on the throne as the true king and we wave the palm branches of our hearts before him because he's worthy of our praise. The Pharisees were absolutely exasperated with Jesus because they thought the whole world was going after him. But their exasperation is our unwavering hope, is it not? We look out and they say, look, the whole world's going after him. We say, yes, thanks be to God. Jews and Gentiles, people from all nations, tribes and tongues brought into the family. Their exasperation is our hope. It's the reason why we get up in the morning. It's the reason why this building exists. God is at work. Yes, we're thankful the whole world has gone after him. Of course we are. King Jesus is on the move and his kingdom continues to spread throughout the whole world. But this kingdom's different, isn't it? It's a kingdom that's built... It's not a kingdom that's built on the military conquests of an earthly king who beat back his enemies, is it? No. It's a kingdom that's built on the sacrifices of the only king in human history who willingly laid down his life for his enemies. Let me say that again. It's the only kingdom that is built and centers around a king who willingly laid down his life for his enemies. It's amazing when you think about it. Suddenly, Hosanna takes on a different meaning. It moves from save us, O Lord, to save more, Lord. Save more. More. May your kingdom go forth. May hearts be changed. May Jesus' name be lifted high. We long to see our churches full. Not just this one, but all the churches that are preaching the true gospel of Christ. We long to see your churches full. Save more, O Lord. Save more. We've all had times when we felt like giving up because we failed to see change in our own hearts or the hearts of others. We've all experienced pain and suffering and brokenness in our families, in our relationships. We've all had doubts, etc. But to use an aviation phrase, as we pull out the landing gear and we bring it home, we've all wanted to pick up that white flag. We've all wanted to lock the door to the shop. We've all wanted to walk away when life feels like a point of no return. But here's the thing. Jesus offers true hope. And we find strength in how he faced a similar point of no return. And to the eyes of the world, the life ministry and death of Jesus look like such a waste. What a waste. Here's what Scott Swain said said, to untrained eyes, the last week of Jesus' ministry appears to be a failed enthronement ceremony with the would-be king ascendant executed for blasphemy and treason. The world looks as, that's your king? What a mess up. <laughs> what, a, what a failed plot to take the throne. He was found out quickly and the Romans took him out. Really? That's what you're basing your hope upon? We say, yeah, that's exactly right. Because there's more to the story, isn't there? But through the eyes of faith, the life, ministry, and death of Jesus look like hope. Why? Because of his resurrection and his promise to return in glory. Again, Scott Swain. Jesus' crucifixion is, in fact, his enthronement on the divine mercy seat, the final Passover sacrifice, the foundation stone of the church, the opening of a new and living way for all nations into God's holy presence. In Christ crucified, the kingdom of God and of David has come. 
And so this morning, as you look at this passage, and you get in the airplane, and you, you leave the runway, and you fly upwards, what you end up being able to do is as you look at a passage like this, it looks like such a waste, but yet, when you get up and you fly up over it, you get a whole new perspective on this passage. This wasn't a point of no return, was it? No. It was a point on the timeline of redemption that stretches all the way back into eternity and stretches forward into eternity, and all of it was for the good and blessing of God's people as He is bringing them in from all nations, tribes, and tongues. And so if you are here and you put your faith in Christ, you're part of this story. That your king has already come. His kingdom has already broken into this world. And he is promising to come again. If you are here this morning and you do not trust Christ, we're glad that you're here. But you need to know that these are not your promises. But they can be. And we pray that you would come to Jesus by faith, confessing your sins and all the ways that you've fallen short. And find rest and trust in the true king. The king who's coming again. You may have looked on a passage like this. You may have grown up going to a church and looked at a passage like this with great scorn. And you said, so what? Why should I care? If you have looked on this passage with scorn, I hope that you will look on it with a new pair of eyes. And see it that for those of us who are here and trust Christ, this is an unwavering hope that we have. That our King has come and He's coming again. And He's good. And He's mighty. And He's strong. And He's promised that one day, someday, I'm going to take all the sad things and I'm going to make them untrue. I'm going to take all the scary places and I'm going to make them safe. And the light of my holiness will fill every nook and cranny of this new city. There's no scary places. There's no walking across the parking lot clutching your, clutching your keys and hoping that something doesn't jump out. It's a place of safety. It's a place of security. And Jesus is at the very center of it. And to that we say, Hosanna. Hosanna, O Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, please. That's our hope. And that's our prayer. Is that your hope? Is it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for scenes like this that on the surface, they seem so trite. They seem so silly. They seem like such a waste. But yet, Lord, we're thankful that all of it was done to fulfill your word. His promise is that you would come riding in on a young donkey, on a donkey's colt, that you would come as the king, this promised one. And Lord, as we lean into your promises, we pray, O Lord, that you would help us to remember you've always been faithful to your word. You will always be faithful to your word. You are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And so if you have promised to return in glory to redeem and rescue and reclaim and set right this broken world and bring in a new heaven and a new earth. Lord, help us by faith to say, yes, Lord, please come quickly. And Father, help us to be fearless in our attempts to share the gospel as we lean into your promises. Lord, help us to find great strength and comfort in you and your ministry among us, O Lord. Pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would draw us even closer to you And draw us to yourself, maybe even for the first time this morning. Lord, help us to hope in the King, the true King, until the very end. We pray and ask these things humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen.